Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. Um, so, Lauren, <laughs> <laughs> happy inter year period to you. <laughs> Let's go with that. Let's go with today is the first day that the light starts to come back. Mm, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yeah, we're speaking from the fiery depths of hell. But <laughs> when our <laughs> listeners are listening to this, it'll be 2022. And mm. let's just hope that by then there's been a little a little reprieve. <laughs> Unlikely, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not going to happen unless they stop trying to capitalize on the vaccines mm. and don't distribute them equally across the globe. Mm. <laughs> So you are having like a real world conversation, probably <laughs> appropriately, <laughs> given these grave conditions. And it's with someone I'm really excited for us to just like immediately get into talking about, um, yeah. Dana Copel, who I would yeah be happy for you to introduce and, and just talk a bit about her writing. Yeah, definitely. So Dana is a writer and an organizer. If she would, if she would be okay with that, we talk a little bit about what what it means to be called that and mm-hmm. and her feelings around it. But she is probably most widely known now as the sort of quote unquote unofficial spokesperson of the unionization of the new museum in New York, which she writes about in a really excellent and um, widely shared article called Against Artsploitation, Unionizing the New Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, this was in issue 59 of The Baffler in September 2021, and it kind of burst upon the scene in a really, really important way um, because it tracks her experience and the experience of her colleagues and comrades throughout this unionization um, process, uh, which was highly rancorous. And there was a lot of um, union busting uh, efforts by the management of the new museum. But it also very much highlights and discusses what the sort of emotional and physical effects of being in this kind of process can can do to one. And I think that that's that's sort of a lesser talked about aspect of of what it means to be essentially politically active in any industry. Right. And I think what's what's really special about Dana's writing, and she's been writing across uh, the span of certainly the last year very intensely for mm-hmm. other publications, including Sense, Decolonial Hacker, The Nation, um, really building an admirable body of writing towards mm-hmm. issues of uh, organizing in, in the art world. But what I think importantly that this sets itself up against, or at least alongside, and, and complements importantly is what we've really been deluged by in the last year or two, which mm-hmm. is like Instagram accounts that kind of obliquely sort of, you know, snapshot some of these more traumatized experiences or um, frustrations at the institutional level, but always under cloak of anonymity. And, and rightly so, I understand yeah. why. But yeah. I think it's really important to kind of highlight Dana's, I think, courage and and yeah. kind of constancy around 
um, these issues as a writer, really putting her name to and going at long form um, analyses that are personally felt as mm-hmm. much as journalistically rigorous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder. I agree with you completely. I think that um, I think that one of the one of the really important things for Dana when we were speaking that became clear to me is that she's not. She does not want to be um, held up as sort of an individual who mm. alone required and then affected this change. Mm. Um, she's very firm in saying that you know this this because because it it necessitates it like a union drive necessitates a group of people, um, yeah. and that this isn't just her, you know. <laughs> and so I think. Yeah, maybe maybe it's interesting interesting to think about perhaps like the union organization um, mm. that was done very much collectively. Although I think that she stepped forward as sort of a media representative, so of course by you know by virtue of that becomes um, sort of a figurehead. Um, but how does that interact also with being a public figure with in regards to writing about art mm-hmm. or being somebody who works in the art world? it's a really, really complicated position that, uh, yeah, that she finds herself in and seems to be negotiating with like incredible grace and bravery. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe to give a little bit of a of background. Uh, so she began working at the new museum in 2016. And in the article, she describes working there as usually things were bad. Sometimes they were worse. Mm-hmm. Um, Dana and several other employees began to organize in around, I think, 2018 is when they began conversations with each other and with people in other museums. Um, And that began a years-long process of unionization that was actively fought against by the new museum's management. Mm -hmm. But the new museum union ratified their contracts in 2020, winning, and here's a quote, um, major wage increases, reductions in healthcare costs, a healthcare stipend for part-time workers, and improvements to paid time off. Crucially, the contract also gave them legally enforceable workplace rights, including a binding grievance and arbitration procedure. Um, so, like, I think the level of the level of uh, contract specifications that are necessary sort of indicates how like terribly, terribly bad the situation was uh, at the New Museum. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that that made this article go so viral. And the thing that hit me about it most was this feeling of reading it and saying, like, I recognize Mm -hmm. all of this. Mm -hmm. Like, I have experienced this. I have experienced worse. I mean, not that it's, you know, it's not a hierarchy of (laughs) trauma, but um, the thing that is so kind of sad and and also important is that, yeah, you read this article as anybody who's worked in a museum, who's worked in the art world on this level, and you think like, yes, this is exactly what it's like. Like, this is, this is no surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just continues and it doubles, it doubles down um, in ways that are very, very scary and, and sort of like impossible to get out of the way of. Uh, so Dana was laid off from her position mm-hmm. at the new museum in April of 2020. This was in the second round of the pandemic layoffs. But in the first round, many people who were in the bargaining unit 
and many people who were active union members were furloughed. Um, and then the second round essentially <laughs> took care of the rest of the most vocal <laughs> organizers within the new museum. Right. Um, and now she works as an organizer for the Office and Professional Employees International Union Local 153, where she supports workers um, who work at nonprofits and want to unionize. And we should add, I mean, it's astonishing that this is like a footnote and not like <laughs> a leading headline, but she was also put in the uh, art review Power 100 um, yeah. list, which I mean, you can take with uh, as much um, gravity or frivolity as you like. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a strange list this year for sure, but Dana's presence on it felt right. Did it? I, I feel like her presence on it was just like the biggest indication of what total bullshit this whole thing is. <laughs> like, we'll say more. I think maybe we can just start by, I asked Dana to comment about it, and she said this really <laughs> spot-on thing, which is that, uh, quote, it's both really flattering that my work has resonated with people, and it also feels really indicative of much of the art world's inability to understand how power actually works. Mm. Which is to say, and these are things we talk about in the interview, but essentially Dana is unhireable now. Mm. Um, cannot get an interview for jobs that she is eminently qualified for um, and probably will not ever work in museums until they are all kind of for the majority unionized um, and it's yeah it's just so fucking rich <laughs> to see um, to see a person who is in a very you know, a very, very, very precarious position and has worked from a position of precarity for years and years and years, suddenly be on this Art What 100 list and, you know, will probably not be on there next year. And that's how we see this list operate. Last year, Black Lives Matter was what, number one on that list? Where is it this year? Like, yeah, I think that was a couple of years ago, but I know what you're saying. Like these, I don't know, it's just all very rich. So Dana reads the first half of the article, and you can find the second half on The Baffler. Um, but there is a part in the second half that I wanted to read out loud because it actively references um, the art review list uh, oh, cool. and, okay. and speaks so beautifully uh, to issues with this. Okay, I'll quote Dana. Uh, Individualism is inherent to the art world or the messy networks of social and economic relationships that fall under that heading. From the top down, scarcity of funding of jobs of exhibition slots fosters competition rather than cooperation. Mm. In the absence of much public funding, U.S. museums depend on private donations, which is to say on the petty whims of particular members of the philanthropic class. This corporatized charity model produces relationships guided predominantly by self-interest. It's what makes unionizing in this sector so powerful and also so difficult. Many people at the top of museums and galleries and art review lists have had to prioritize their career over their lives and over the needs of others in order to get there. Over time, these decisions come to seem like sacrifices and the road to conventional success like a struggle for autonomy and fair treatment. But struggle is collective. It has little to do with personal gain. 
and a career or a life structured according to individual benefit is one structured by cruelty, by the assumption that other people are exploitable and disposable. That quote really hits home for me because that is not, um, that's not a world I want to live in and it's not a world that I want to work in. And I think that um, unless we really take it to heart, it is very, very easy to fall into these kinds of rubrics that Dana is discussing here. I should mention that Momus is working with Dana on um, a column potentially or a kind of serial essay that will take a look at how organizing in the art world is maybe held in high relief or or not from the uh, more general union world conversation that's emerging, mm-hmm. you know, and spiking in the last year, especially. Um, so just trying to look at the exceptionalism um, or maybe the kind of self-soothing that we do around thinking we're exceptional in, in the <laughs> art world against that larger <laughs> conversation. And it's been, it's been wonderful just to be rolling these um, ideas around with her uh, over the last few weeks. Um, we'll mm-hmm. see that column emerge in early 2022. But I will say just to, to quote one of our associate editors responding to uh, Dana in the last couple of weeks, this is Catherine Wagley saying that she found the pillorying of art world elitism so good in Dana's writing, but that it was also held in, in sort of a sharp contrast to the sensitivity that Dana uh, demonstrates towards the many layers of vulnerability at play. And I think we all know, any of us working in this field, that um, it is about the worst industry you can work in, in terms of all of these kinds of violences, however small or great, being almost reliably present at the institutional level. And I know Mm -hmm. you know that firsthand, I mean, as you've just kind of gestured to um, Mm -hmm. earlier, but... I, I wonder if we can offer any resources or like, is there, is there a place that those who are listening who are experiencing these same, same challenges can, can maybe be pointed to beyond Dana's writing, I should say. <laughs> I asked Dana that same question and we get into, we get into a conversation about salary sharing, which I think is a really, really important tool. But I also um, would just echo something that Dana says, which is just sharing of information in general. I think that um, mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. this thing, this illusion of scarcity um, and having to sort of, yeah. uh, keep information, keep opportunity, keep um, privilege for oneself is only a tool of those who are controlling the power, which is in the end actually quite abundant. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things, if you're looking, if you're trying to look um, very specifically at organizing and union organizing in the museum environment, I would gesture to the website newmuseumunion.org backslash FAQ. And that's where you can see a really, really useful breakdown of how they did it, but also tips on how it works. You know, things like, can I lose my job for joining a union? I'm in favor of a union, but I'm nervous about what my boss will think. Um, mm-hmm. co- questions about strikes. Um, and I think that this is a really, really important resource to just take a look at if you're thinking about 
if you're thinking about this. Yeah. Um, but I do think that one of the things that's so strong about this this article that Dana wrote and the interview that we did is that it uh, it's just a very digestible and deeply felt um, account of what, mm-hmm. what it means to actually do this work. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I can't wait to hear your conversation. So this is Lauren Wetmore and Dana Kopel reading Against Artsploitation, Unionizing the New Museum, published in The Baffler, September 2021. When I started working at the New Museum, I still wanted to be a curator. I'd spent the last two years in a prestigious master's program for curatorial studies and devoted the summer after graduating to fruitless applications for jobs at museums across the country. The new museum listing had been for an editor, work I'd done on the side for several years, but never considered as a career path. But it was the new museum, prestigious, cool, the kind of employer you mentioned offhandedly at an opening and were instantly taken more seriously. I'd seen most of their recent exhibitions, even trekking down from upstate on a school night to attend the opening of their recent triennial. And I liked editing, I reassured myself. Plus, I'd only stay for a year or two, just long enough to gain experience working in an institution before moving into curatorial work somewhere else. After three interviews in a windowless conference room on the museum's sixth floor and some reshuffling in the external affairs department, I got the job. I'd heard rumors, of course, from friends, even an ex-boyfriend who had worked at the museum. They hated it. Pay was notoriously bad, as was treatment from the higher-ups. But it was a job, with health care, which I needed, and cultural clout, which I still cared about. I showed up for my first day of work in September 2016, on time and bright-eyed. My friends and my ex had all worked in the bookstore, but I'd be upstairs in the office where my new colleagues would obviously value the knowledge of contemporary art and attention to detail I'd been hired for. I spent the next three and a half years editing and proofreading everything from lobby signage and gala invitations to catalog essays and press releases. Following Donald Trump's election, the new museum, which has long positioned itself as a leader in gender parity and equitable representation within the art world, doubled down on their progressive branding. I was editing wall labels for exhibitions like Trigger, Gender as a Tool and a Weapon, and helping my co-editor, Thea, speed proofread the catalog for Songs for Sabotage, the museum's 2018 triennial which brought together works by young artists from around the world under the rubric of sabotage as a radical political strategy. None of them were paid for their work beyond production fees, standard practice at the museum. The first essay of the exhibition's catalog, Thea later pointed out, features an epigraph from Fred Moten and Stefano Harney's The Undercommons. She read it to me over the phone well after we had both left the museum. Quote, To work today is to be asked more and more, to do without thinking, to feel without emotion, to move without friction, to act without question, to translate without pause, to desire without purpose, to connect without interruption. We laugh knowingly, quote, and that's literally what management was asking of us. Somehow, the anti-austerity politics of the work we were publishing and exhibiting didn't apply to those of us working at the museum. Behind the new museum's veneer of social justice was rampant exploitation. Salaries were so low that full-time employees worked extra jobs. 
An hourly rate in visitor services in the bookstore teetered just above minimum wage and hadn't gone up in several years. The turnover rate was so rapid that after only two years, I was the most senior person in my entire department, including the boss. A culture of toxic competitiveness and secrecy pitted departments against each other instead of against impossible timelines and chronic understaffing. And the chasm between staff and executive salaries was so vast that an art critic emailed out of the blue just to point it out. Lisa Phillips, the museum's director, made over $700,000 in 2017, around 20 times as much as some of her employees. Yet managers claimed the small museum couldn't afford raises for the rest of us. Thea used to say she felt like she was starring in a bad cinematic send-up of the contemporary art world. But the work, putting together exhibitions that spoke to the most urgent concerns of our time, felt so important that it didn't matter if we had to perpetuate those same problems in order to get it all done. Work from underneath. Quote, from its beginnings as a one-room office on Hudson Street to the inauguration of its first freestanding building on the Bowery, designed by Sana in 2007, the new museum continues to be a place of experimentation and a hub of new art and new ideas. This is a clunky, awkward sentence, but I wasn't allowed to edit it because, as my boss once told me, the museum had published it before. And who was I to try to rework the museum's mission? New art, new ideas a program that demands little beyond novelty. When curator Marcia Tucker founded the new museum in 1977, she envisioned a space to support new work by living artists who didn't have widespread exposure or institutional support. Tucker had been fired from the Whitney Museum of American Art the previous year, following several shows of post-minimalist and process art that at the time proved too experimental for the established institution. Beyond simply creating a museum that better supported living artists, she also wanted the museum's internal structure to be non-hierarchical. When it first opened, there were only a few employees. Tucker paid herself nothing and gave everyone else the same salary. She had everyone rotate between jobs so that everybody understood each other's work. Later, she revised this plan to incorporate two salary tiers for part-time and full-time workers. In a 1972 lecture titled Women in Museums, Tucker summarized her vision, quote, what we are interested in is justice and not the substitution of one power hierarchy for another. Many of us have been talking about the ideal museum, about a museum of the future, one that is internally structured to eliminate racism, sexism, age discrimination, salary inequities, and unreasonable competition, and one that might allow us to rectify those aspects of the art structure that we find detrimental. The museum remains to showcasing work by living and underrepresented artists, though Tucker's insistence on internal equity has largely been forgotten. In 1999, Lisa Phillips, another former Whitney curator, succeeded Tucker as director. During her tenure, the museum opened a dedicated Starchitect design building on the Bowery and expanded to a staff of around 150, putting on three or four cycles of exhibitions per year with an annual budget of around $14 million. An $89 million expansion of the physical museum and its endowment, planned to begin in 2020, is now on hold because of the pandemic. In a contemporary art world that valorizes jet-set exhibition hopping and perpetual novelty, Phillips is often credited with putting the new museum on the map. 
But these changes have also made the new museum an institution of entrenched hierarchies. I worked at the back of the fifth floor office, along with the rest of the junior staff in the external affairs department, in a fluorescent lit forgotten corner where a sympathetic director might pop back occasionally to see whether she had overheard laughter or sobs. Alongside our piles of work, the five of us maintained a lively Slack chat where we shared memes and vented about how our boss made our jobs more difficult. Karen Wong, the museum's deputy director and the head of external affairs, once rode the elevator five floors and then walked an entire block alongside me and a colleague without acknowledging us. Usually things were bad. Sometimes they were worse. I remember a two-week period in the middle of winter during which the museum was without water because of construction on the Bowery. Employees were forced to walk to the nearby Whole Foods to use the bathroom. My department was permitted to work from home during that time, but most weren't. Once, the night before the opening of Italian artist Carol Rama's first New York survey in 2017, I worked a 21-hour day. I stayed at the museum until 4.30 in the morning, making wall labels with one other employee. Our boss was asleep at home by 11. New York State didn't yet mandate paid overtime for our salary thresholds, so we each received a spa gift certificate and a day off to use it. When I received a promotion after Thea left the museum for grad school, I tried to negotiate my salary. My boss at the time told me the next step would be to speak with Wong. The following week, she asked me why I wanted to speak with Wong, and then when I told her it was to to discuss my salary, replied that Wong could meet with me if I felt it was absolutely necessary. It was, I said. When we finally met, Wong told me my new salary would be set by the CFO and that she had no say in the matter. When I dropped by the CFO's office to ask him about it, he asked me to come back in an hour or two because he, quote, couldn't remember what Karen and I decided on. I'd caught the executives in an obvious lie, but there was nothing I could do about it. Art Brutal. Despite management's best intentions, their hypocrisy and blatant disregard galvanized the staff. In March 2018, capitalizing on the urgency of the Me Too movement, the museum hosted a series of public workshops on sexual harassment in the arts. Staff were encouraged but not required to attend. A few female coworkers and I went to one workshop on how women might find mentorship and negotiate for higher salaries in the art world. Even before it started, the only way we could describe it was rich. Karen Wong, the person who had been less than helpful in my own salary negotiations, who could have been our mentor but met with us no more than three times a year, who determined our below living wage salaries, and who had told an employee in her department that if designers had higher salaries at the Met, well, then you could go work at the Met. This person was going to lecture us about how to negotiate raises and find mentors. But we went, despite knowing we'd hate it, just to see what she'd say. The workshop itself was frustrating but uneventful. Wong and a consultant from the UN who advocated turning poor women into entrepreneurs taught us how to lean in, and then we broke into discussion groups where we were asked to come up with ideas for improving working conditions for women in the arts. No one mentioned unions. Later that week, at a nearby Nepalese restaurant on our lunch break, four of us from external affairs and the museum's sole curatorial assistant talked shit about our jobs and the workshop, drafting a provisional list of demands. The following week, our numbers grew. 
seven of us convened in the park behind the museum, including the education assistant and someone from development who knew more about the budget. We realized that our grievances were the same across departments. Wages we couldn't live on, inexperienced or verbally abusive managers, uncompensated overtime, the sense that museum leadership considered us disposable, easy to replace once we each inevitably burned out. We kept talking. We shared our salaries. There were 15, then 20 of us at the nondescript wine bar where we started meeting after work every other week. The idea of unionizing kept coming up more seriously each time. So I reached out to my friend, OK Fox, one of the hosts of the podcast Art and Labor. They put me in touch with a union steward from the Museum of Modern Art, who in turn put me in touch with Maida Rosenstein, the president of UAW Local 2110, which represents MoMA's office staff union, along with other museum, university, and clerical workers. In early October 2018, a dozen or so of us headed up Bowery after work to my friend's apartment on East 9th Street, where we met with Maida and a few other stewards from MoMA. They told us about their union, which was formed in the early 1970s, but had recently gone through intensive contract negotiations, and they shared a chart of base salaries that made our jaws drop. In many cases, MoMA staff were making nearly double what new museum employees in comparable positions earned. Emboldened by this meeting, we continued organizing, meeting coworkers to chat at nearby coffee shops and having them sign union support cards. We filed a petition for a union election on January 4th, 2019. The backlash from management started almost immediately. On receiving the email informing her of our intent to form a bargaining unit, Lisa Phillips told another more sympathetic executive, quote, they can bargain with Marsha Tucker. Tucker had died of cancer in 2006. A day or two later, following an active shooter training for museum staff, one of my colleagues overheard Phillips' assistant say to a manager, quote, I wish, I wish we could send the shooters after whoever is organizing the union. Phillips then hired a consulting firm specializing in union avoidance, Adams, Nash, Haskell, and Sheridan, to impede our unionizing effort. At an ANHS meeting for supervisors, the consultants told everyone that loyalty to management was expected. Executives were said to have speculated in a separate meeting about who was behind the unionization campaign. We heard that Massimiliano Joni, the museum's artistic director, suggested it was the art handlers, some of whom had sent around an open letter with demands five or so years earlier. Karen Wong supposedly suspected me, maybe because of the conversations we'd had about my salary. She wasn't exactly wrong, only to the extent that the individualism of the managerial class makes it impossible for them to understand that no one person is behind a union drive. In a mandatory meeting convened by management to tell us why we shouldn't unionize, Joni compared unionizing to Brexit, insisting that, like the Brits who voted leave, those of us who would vote for a union didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. He also maintained that, quote, change can be implemented without traumatic measures like a union. The museum considered a living wage in New York City to be $51,000 per year, and the average salary in the proposed bargaining unit was, according to management's calculations, $52,000. It's unclear how they got this number, much higher than what most of my coworkers were making. 
My best guess is that they included the salaries of a couple of employees who had recently got substantial raises after five or so years, even as they simultaneously contested those employees' eligibility to unionize with the National Labor Relations Board. Quote, the conclusion I'm drawing, Wong said, is that individual agency with regard to salaries is successful here. That was the third of four identical back-to-back captive audience meetings in which executives offered a range of union-busting arguments to a quarter of museum staff at a time, regardless of their union eligibility, and took turns shedding crocodile tears. Quote, something must be very broken, Lisa Phillips lamented in the meeting I attended. Management spoke of how they had failed us and pleaded for another chance to address our concerns. Quote, there's a much greater chance of those needs being met through collaborative, creative conversation. That's the path rather than a union, we were told. Dialogue and the vague promise of collaboration were offered as substitutes for material change. Quote, our door is always open, management insisted. The meetings were each half an hour long with no time set aside for questions or comments. We didn't take the bait. If anything, these meetings solidified distrust of management and commitment to the union. Still, by the time of our vote on January 24th, I hadn't properly slept or eaten in weeks. My co-organizers and I were running on fumes, solidarity from our colleagues, and the fuel of our own rage. While the votes were counted, a group of us sat in the museum's basement theater. We were confident, but every no read out by the NLRB rep was still terrifying. In the end, we won overwhelmingly. 38 yeses, 8 noes, and 10 challenged ballots, including mine, that were never opened because the museum contested our eligibility. I don't remember much of that evening's celebrations, beyond hugging and crying and cheap cosmopolitans in our favorite cave-themed bar. I do remember asking a comrade who had worked at the museum for years, rhetorically and with misplaced confidence. What can they do to me now? I guess just psychological warfare? Thank you for that. I mean, I think we should start by saying that um, that that's only half of of the essay and that you can read the rest of it on thebaffler.com. But maybe um, if you don't mind, I don't know, having, I guess, come out the other side of this, um, maybe you can give sort of a short... Uh, description of of what happened after that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, so the answer is yes, they could do a lot of psychological warfare. And indeed they did um, on me and my colleagues. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But we survived it. We we had pretty intensive um, negotiations for our first contract that lasted from I think March of 2019 through the very beginning of October, that's when we ratified our contract. Mm-hmm. Before that, which actually isn't really in the essay, but we also had hearings um, about eligibility. Um, so that was another pretty draining process that like was only necessitated by the museum's like pretty hardcore anti-union stance. Oh, you mean eligibility that you would, sorry, that you would be eligible to unionize at all? No. So eligibility for um, particular positions. Oh, I um, see. So like a really common union busting tactic is mm-hmm. um, to try to like whittle down the size of a union by saying that certain positions, certain people are not eligible because they're supervisors or managers or what are known as confidential mm-hmm. employees. 
Um, okay. And so the museum did a lot of that. And we had to go to hearings at the National Labor Relations Board. Um, wow. Yeah, wow. there's just not even room in the essay for that, too. I was, like, cross-examined for, like, four and a half hours. Um, I've since had to work with the lawyer that did that in my oh job my as a union organizer. <laughs> He was like, hey, nice to hear from you. I was like, yeah, you too, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that one of, the, one of the numbers that really stood out in this for me was when you say, um, when you say that you, were, you discovered how much the new museum had paid to, had paid the legal, their legal support. And in this like time-honored tradition of management for getting something in the printer tray. Yeah. I believe it was six hundred thousand um, dollars, twenty nineteen to twenty twenty. But this was this was very early twenty twenty. I imagine that honestly, I imagine that went up because yeah. um, legally, because we were unionized, they had to negotiate with us over the effects of the pandemic layoffs mm. and furloughs, and so that was more for their lawyer to do. The other thing wow. is that doesn't actually include um, their legal fees from before we were unionized because they worked, they actually worked with a different law firm up until that point. Mm. Um, so that that's just the Proskauer fees. Um, but all the fees from the time we filed our petition to unionize through our vote, we don't even know what those are. It's so baffling um, to spend so much money in order to not spend a tiny bit of money, you know? Right. I mean, <laughs> it's and- like, a bad empl- business in a way. <laughs> exactly. And yet, like, employers do this all the time. Yes. And I think because their calculation is, like, and in the sense they're probably right, it's good mm. business long term. Right. Because they don't have to share power. And that's, like, yeah. what all these people are, like, desperately trying to avoid. Yeah, um, exactly. But it's, yeah, especially remarkable to see it at a museum, and particularly one with the history of the new museum, just this, like, deeply entrenched resistance to sharing power literally at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, um, so the case of labor rights at the new museum, as we know from what you've read uh, to us just now, has been ongoing and actually really widely reported on. I mean, there are articles in Artnet, Art Forum, Freeze, New York Times, et cetera, um, some of which you were quoted in. And there's actually a really great, if anybody's looking for um, interview with you and Lily Bartell by Ben Beckett in Burnaway. Oh yeah, Lily um, Bartle, but yeah, Lily, Lily Bartle. Thank you. Um, and I'm wondering about this this piece in particular. So, why did you decide to publish to write it now? Um, why is it published now? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, I want. I this is something I felt like I, I wanted to do and sort of needed to do for a long time. Just mm-hmm. like. You know, I was the main person speaking to press throughout the entire process. Obviously, there were other of my colleagues who spoke to press as well. Um, But that I was generally like the main press contact. And that's something I like volunteered myself for, like knowing full well that it was probably going to blow up my career Mm. in the art world. And it did. Um, Mm. But I mean, and maybe that will change as more and more institutions unionize. What has been the effects of it blowing up your career? Um, I mean, it's just like I've applied for certain jobs that like I would otherwise um, hear hear from at least mm-hmm. for a first interview that I'm like very qualified for and know people mm-hmm. at. And then like 
don't hear anything and take a look right. at their board. And I'm like, oh, yeah, there's the new museum overlap. It makes perfect sense. Right, um, right, right. I mean, yeah. I, I think I just sort of made myself unhirable within art institutions, for the moment at least, because, I don't know, at least even a year or two ago, most of them weren't unionized. I'm just like on record multiple places being like, I think all museums should be unionized. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. not what they want. But that's a super brave thing to take on. I mean, I think that that is what prevents, you know, the majority of people, I guess, in professional positions in any industry. Yeah, um, absolutely. And like, especially in the art world, the way that retaliation extends beyond the workplace um, because of like all the professional networks. And, you know, for me, it was something I was also in a position to do. I had like certain things that like made my life a little more secure at that point um, and felt like I, I could do that. I was one of the better paid people mm. Mm. in our union, which, you know, isn't saying much, but like I wasn't, I wasn't one of the people making 35 or 40 a year. I was making, right. after my promotion, I was making 55 a year. And so like, yeah, um, I felt like I had a little bit more security and like, because of that could put myself out there a little bit more than people who are just maybe not in a position to take on that risk. Yeah. Um, yeah. So was writing this um, sort of a way of sort of being able to give a more personal narrative yeah. to something that you had been acting as a figurehead to? I don't know. I guess I'm a little wary of like the term figurehead. Yeah, um, no, it's a bad term. No, it's like, I know like it, it can end up, functioning that way but like you know I spoke to press because I was willing to speak to press um Mm -hmm. not because like Mm -hmm. this was my union effort or anything and I think that's just something I like always want to clarify like it's it's a collective effort and there's many people whose names are like out there much less or not at all like intentionally Mm -hmm. so who like put an enormous Mm -hmm. amount of work into making that possible um but yeah I mean the thing about speaking to press is like you have to be really positive and like that was really effective for us um and I it's and I you know as a union organizer now that's what I tell workers too it's like and you know I work with nonprofits most of them care about the work and want to be positive anyway but like it's just mm-hmm. like the way to be successful in sort of like galvanizing public support is to speak really positively about why you care about your job and why you just want to be able to sustain a life doing it um Mm -hmm. but I mean obviously there was a lot of anger and frustration um that like can't really see the light of day when you're speaking to reporters yeah and yeah and just I think like the personal the personal stories too felt important to tell is like some some form of like public accounting of like how how truly awful museum management's behavior was and also just like I don't know for me I think there's definitely something cathartic about it ultimately yeah absolutely even though it was pretty hard to write at times I can imagine how did it feel to read it aloud really weird honestly (laughs) um (laughs) I feel like there's um there's a little bit of distance now yeah um even reading it, I'm like, oh, I wrote this. Yeah, this mm. happened to me, um, <laughs> which is nice. Um, I think that's probably healthy. Yeah. You know, yeah. And writing this essay plus like several years of intensive trauma therapy. Yeah. Just like, oh, I could just read this now. It's casual. <laughs> um, 
Um, so were you approached by the baffler to write this or was it something that you wrote and then were looked for a place for? So the story is actually, I was writing it. I don't know how much of this I'm supposed to say, but <laughs> so don't see why I shouldn't. I was writing it for another publication. I was working with an editor there who's really wonderful and did like an enormous amount of work on my like very messy early drafts. Hmm. Um, Sarah Resnick, which is just like a huge, huge help. And ultimately that publication just like declined to publish it. And we had sort of known that they, or like I had known and obviously the editor had known that they don't take anything on spec. Um, But like my editor had been in dialogue with them for a while. So it was sort of surprising ultimately when they were like, actually we can't do this. And to me, at least my understanding was that it was for like legal and political reasons. They were basically like afraid of, getting sued by Lisa Phillips and not having really? the resources to handle that. Really? Um, yeah. And so then I, it was a process of sort of finding somewhere else to publish it. And a friend put me in touch with his editor at the Baffler. Um, and they were really wonderful to work with. And hmm. yeah, happy with how it worked out. And has there been, has that come up? Have they been sued? Or what has the kind of reaction been? Not, I'm not that I'm aware of. I, I think they would tell me if they were <laughs> I hope so. Um, I hope they would tell me. Um, what if this was all an elaborate ruse to, to like serve you with a lawsuit, me inviting oh you to be on the podcast? <laughs> I have to say, like, would it surprise me? Not entirely. Um, not because of you, obviously. I'm just like, nothing they, nothing they would do would totally surprise me anymore. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to hear if you've heard from people or what the reactions have been. I mean, I, I haven't heard anything from anyone at the museum, really. Okay. I mean, I've spoken to, obviously, a lot of former staff members, but yeah. I think my sense of it from the outside is just that management's PR plan was just to, like, let it blow over and not say anything, Yeah, um, which may have been smart of them. Mm-hmm. for the first mm-hmm. time in a while. Um, <laughs> I will say most of their response to union stuff was not mm. in my sense of it the like most strategic right. PR plan but that's just me um but uh, no other than that um like the response has been really amazing like so many people have reached out I mean it's, it's sort of depressing too because so many people that I know and that I don't know have reached out and like you know thank you for writing this this piece really resonated with my experience at mm-hmm. another art institution or another job mm-hmm. um and I'm like that sucks like I mean I'm happy yeah. it resonated but like I hate that all of us have these like horrible work situations I mean like yeah it shouldn't yeah. be like this It's incredible how exactly as you say, like everybody can read this. Everybody who's worked in the museum or in the art world in general, I think, can read this and say, you know, not only like I know what this is like and I've experienced this, but like if you think that's bad, let me tell you another story, you know? Yeah. And it's it's really horrifying. (laughs) Completely, completely. And like, yeah, I mean, like so many, I got so many messages Right when it came out, um, and you know, people being like, Oh, I had this experience here, yeah. I had that experience there, and I'm like, I, you know, it just makes me sad and yeah, like very, yeah, very overwhelming to hear all of that. And like, you know, I, I think I 
I talk about this at the end of the essay, but like unionizing, like, like can make a material difference and does make a material difference in these things. But like, ultimately, I mean, ultimately, like a lot of this is also just like, it's so entrenched. It's, in an industry that's so personality driven and so wealth driven mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. rich people are simply like allowed and encouraged to be as petty as they want in the mm-hmm. art world, like everywhere. And I mean, I don't know for me, like also as a communist, like <laughs> there are limits to what we can do, even like if we're organizing mm-hmm. as workers within institutions and the institutions remain and that's, you know, the art institutions and the mm-hmm. institution of like racial capitalism. Um, yes. So like these, these are steps and they're really important steps, but it's not, it's not a cure-all. Yeah. And I think also just to say like, there are, um, you know, there are things that one can do, but then there's also this idea of like an emotional or a health burden that this kind of work places on you. Um, and I really liked that in the piece, you do speak about that and just saying now that you underwent trauma therapy and that, um, yeah, I wonder, the question is not, was it worth it, but are there points, um, like I get the impression from the text that there, there's a point at which you decided that you would continue on with this, with the full knowledge that it was going to be a long-term fight. Um, and how did you kind of come to that decision? And then how did you sort of negotiate your own like health throughout it? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question. Um, I want to say, like, I don't think I came to that decision. Like, mm. it, it, I don't think it ever really felt like a decision for me. It was just okay. like, this is what I have to do. So I'm doing it. Right. Um, like, this is what's necessary. So I'm doing it. Um, which isn't to say that that's the best way to approach these things. It's sure. just the way I did um, yeah. at that time. And, yeah, again, like, you know, as the title of the interview that Lily and I did, which I think about a lot, goes mm-hmm. like no regrets. Yeah. Like I genuinely I don't regret any of it. But mm-hmm. I think I've I've learned a lot from the process. And I think like I now know how to do certain things differently. And like when I mm-hmm. work with groups now who are organizing, I think I try to really be sensitive to like, you know, how a workload is distributed and who's taking yeah. on what and like how, you know, how capacity yeah, is like how burnout can manifest um, mm-hmm. because those were things like I, you know, having not really had a ton of organizing experience in general before I started this and certainly like zero experience with union organizing, like mm-hmm. there were just a lot of things I didn't know. Um, and so I just like pushed through it a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that definitely had like ramifications on my health, my physical health, my mental health, my personal life. Um, yeah. And yeah, I guess it felt important to be honest about that too in the piece and sort of like take stock of the ways in which this thing that's like really remarkable that we did um, has also had like pretty intense consequences and also like, you know, didn't need to have all those consequences. Like, yeah. these are a direct result of retaliation from museum management. Like this isn't like a byproduct of union organizing generally. Like Mm -hmm. this is, this is caused by management. They could behave differently and they choose not to. Yes. There are alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm curious, do you identify as a, an activist or an organizer? What kind of language should we use around that? Um, I, I, I don't love the term activist. Okay. Um, I use organizer, um, but I guess I'm like more comfortable with that also because it's literally my job title now. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. so I'd like to talk about that too, because I mean, you, you talk about how you didn't make the, didn't make the decision, I suppose, through the new museum process, but you have definitely made the decision now. This is your job. <laughs> Uh, yes and no. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, I did make the decision. I did start looking at jobs in unions and in union organizing, like both with like intentionality because I like really lost interest in working in the art world and working mm-hmm. in museums, mm-hmm. um, having seen sort of like mm-hmm. how the sausage is made. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. And I think that is such a common thing. Like, you know, the the trope is always like curators or people saying like, oh, I just, what am I going to do? Like, I have to get out of this. I'll become a lawyer or, you know. Like right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's funny. I feel like I'm seeing so many like friends and acquaintances, like also like have this experience now yeah. of just like, all right, this is bad. Not qualified to do that much. Like, yeah. what direction am I going in? Um, I, yeah, it's like same. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, that, that was sort of the thing. Like, wasn't qualified to do that much. Like, was pretty burned out and disillusioned by the art world. Um, and also, as I mentioned, like, not, not the greatest candidate for most art institutions that were ununionized at that point um and so this seemed sort of like and like I don't know I was it's definitely something I was interested in and remain obviously interested in but like Mm -hmm. it also seemed a little bit inevitable um and that you would have to switch fields in a way that I would have to switch fields and that like you know this was one of a handful of things I am qualified to do at this point yeah um yeah okay so yeah, I mean, I, I like it a lot, and if obviously it feels like rewarding in a way. Although mm-hmm. I'm like structurally, like I don't know if the word's suspicious, but I, I think a lot about like getting paid to organize um, mm-hmm. and sort of the politics of that. Um, yeah. I think with the union structure, it's a little different, but in general, like especially because I work with all of these sort of like you know, quote unquote, progressive, like mission driven, like service based nonprofits Mm -hmm. um, and talk to the workers who are just also like so fucked over. It's interesting to hear like ambivalence about about your position. Yeah. I mean, and I I like the work I do and I I work with really wonderful people. Mm -hmm. Um, It was definitely very hard for me for a while. And I think it's only starting to feel a little more manageable, honestly, just because Mm -hmm. of like the trauma that I have from the new museum and it's, yeah. yeah, it's funny. It's like, that's the reason that experience is the reason I like know what I'm doing at all. Like that's the reason I'm yeah. able to do this job. And it's also the reason that I sometimes feel like I'm not able to do this job. Like, yeah, I definitely had moments earlier on where like, you know, some email or some meeting or something would be a trigger. And yeah, it's just like, I literally got PTSD from union organizing. Why did I decide to like make my salary dependent on it? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think I'm I'm learning how to navigate like my own capacity and 
yeah, I don't know, writing this essay, I think has been a part of that process too, just a part of like, just letting some of this go and be in the world and not having to just like keep it internal to myself so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. Um, this is obviously not at all on the scale of um, what you describe as your experience, but that idea of like PTSD, I, I, I definitely have like similar experiences where, you know, you imagine some kind of trauma that you experienced in a museum in, um, environment, or you have that memory of it. And then you say, go into a new position and you can see like the red flags of those things being enacted again. And you think mm. like, Oh shit, here we go again. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's so intense. And I mean, that's the thing about work is like most of us have to do it. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, I think especially in the U.S. too, it's not just salary, it's your health insurance. Well, exactly. So it's like it's I have all these insurance. like yes. ongoing health problems from my time at the new museum that like, yeah. yeah, I have to maintain employment in order to be able to treat. Yeah. Um, like you work for your health. Yeah. Is, <laughs> yeah. You work to live. Yeah. Yeah. I just depressing as hell yeah yeah one of the things speaking of depressing one of the things that I found (laughs) kind of on (laughs) if if I may um one of the things I found most uh depressing but as is the usual refrain like not too surprising was the section about Hans Hakka and um and that whole situation. I mean, I think what I would what I would like to know is um, from you how members of the creative community, so artists or writers, people outside of the new museum, like how people came forward for the union organizing at the new museum. I know that uh, there was a big social media campaign that I think a lot of artists participated in. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious as to like how solidarity was demonstrated or did you feel solidarity in a larger structure by your, maybe by your other colleagues in art publishing, that would also be really interesting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's, there's the Hans Hakka anecdote, which mm-hmm. is, yeah, where he says he, um, Basically, I guess I can give some context around that. We sure, were yeah. we had called a strike vote. Um, this is towards the end of our contract negotiations because we were just hitting so many roadblocks for management um, on really important things and not just financial things. Um, the salary was a huge part of it, but like even like basic union rights um, and things like that. And um, even like before we even were seriously considering unionizing, like we knew that this Hans Hacke exhibition, this like major retrospective mm-hmm. um, was in the pipeline um, mm-hmm. and timing wise was like something we talked about as being potentially advantageous to us, especially once we were in contract negotiations and that show is coming up because his work is, you know, so much about institutional critique um, yes. and in a he way so like, aligned with the work we're doing. Absolutely. I mean, just for, for, for context, like it's like if you have your art history textbook and we start talking about institutional critique, Hans Hacke is the first person that comes up, like very specifically about situating critique within the museum. So yeah, anyways, please continue. So that, I mean, that meeting was just really, really depressing. Speaking of depressing, mm. um, it's just like a handful of us from our bargaining committee met with him and sort of like went through, you know, where we were at in contract negotiations and sort of the pushback we'd faced from management 
from the beginning, um, what we were fighting for, like what kind of support we were looking for. And basically Uh like if we were to go on strike, it was going to be, um, during install for his exhibition because, you know, you go on strike when you have the most power and the most leverage and that's when the most people at the museum would be working. So at that point, about a third of our unit, um, were art handlers, um, mm-hmm. who only worked, you know, during de- installs and deinstalls. At this point, it's probably a larger, larger percentage because they just decimated the office staff during mm. the pandemic. Yeah. And so, you know, tell all this to Hans Hakka and he's <laughs> like, well, you know, like I get it and I support you, but, um, I have a lot of people coming from out of town and even out of the country for this show. And so like, if it's, um, if the strike is like during or before the opening, like I just can't help you. But if it's afterwards, like I'm happy to home. It's like, if it's afterwards, it just doesn't do shit for us. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's like when, if like I will participate when it's completely convenient for me. Right. And I, I mean, that's like, that's the thing talking about like solidarity from, um, from artists and from people in the art world, like, and this is, this is the case, not only with artists, mm-hmm. um, it's the case internally. It's, it's like to generalize the case in most organizing situations, but it's like the people who have most to lose the people, yeah, like the people who are more established and more comfortable. Those are the people who like, aren't, they're not going to help you. The people who have the most comfort, like are the least willing to sacrifice that sacrifice that comfort um and we we had an enormous amount of support from artists and people who've been involved at the museum like in multiple social media campaigns and we had a rally in june of 2019 um outside of the openings and like we had a whole like line with chanting and signs and like a bunch of artists like showed up to that including people who had had shows fairly recently at the museum Mm. like Adelita Husni Bey and Mm. Hannah Black and um Fred Moten who who had contributed to two different catalogs for shows that were opening that day showed up and just hung out outside with us um and like I mean (laughs) for me and it's maybe because I'm also petty and maybe this is my art world experience but I'm like I remember that I remember yeah I remember who walked in without saying anything and I remember who stayed outside and I remember who yeah. like you know went in but wore the buttons and like asked what they could do and like you know I remember who like responded right away to the like social media campaign asks and like yes that you know it, it means a lot and it's like really it, it's really like formative for like my understanding of like you know the art world and like who's who's actually doing the work in it and yeah. who's willing to put something on the line to like yeah support their colleagues yeah did you find any discussion I mean because you worked specifically within like the publishing department of the museum did you find that there was solidarity with um with other art publications or did they really get involved in any way we got good coverage from our publications. Okay. Um, yeah, definitely. Like there, we got a lot of coverage and like, we really like mobilized press, I think pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was pretty strategic on our end because like, we're sort of like, we know the museum doesn't give a shit about us, but they give a shit about their public image. Yeah. Um, and I, like, I also want to be careful saying that because I think that's, that can be the most visible part of organizing too. And now with, 
like in my experience as an organizer now, like I think there's a lot of, or there's often like a sense of like, oh, this is like the public part. Like we go public and then like management just has to agree. And it's like, actually, if you're not organized internally, then like that doesn't really do anything. Um, Mm. But together, those things are really effective. The other thing I was going to say was just like, I think for me at least, and I think maybe for some of my colleagues, like one of the things that made like the idea of unionizing conceivable was the like digital media organizing that started happening Mm. a few years earlier um, because that happened very visibly and like unsurprisingly very online. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, and I'm like far from an expert in all of this, but you know, there's like MTV news and vice Mm. and like all of these other publications that sort of like, um, unionized in like maybe the mid 2010s um and had in some cases pretty public fights about it um I think that for me it was like oh this is like a thing you can do in sectors that are not like historically organized right this is a thing that makes sense for us also and ultimately like this is a thing that makes sense for everybody but um and and I also want to say, like, we had we had a lot of support from people, like, involved with, like, Freelance Solidarity Project um, mm-hmm. also came to that rally in June. And, like, um, so that, that was a big thing. I think museum publishing, less so. And I think that's probably because, like, people, museum staff couldn't necessarily, like, put themselves out there without, like you know, drawing attention to their own workplace. And I think, right. I think maybe I'd feel differently about that if so many museums hadn't also just unionized, but they have. And so I'm like, you know, there's, there's certain degrees of like publicness that you can, that you can risk and that you can't risk if you're thinking about organizing. It's also like, I don't know, publishing, museum publishing is pretty small, um, I mean, at the new museum, we didn't even have a department. There were like two editors in what was effectively the marketing department. So, hmm. Hmm. Um, but I think that that what you were saying about it it even being possible in say uh, yeah like for art workers to unionize. I was reading this other article that you wrote in Text or Kunst. You said when we formed our union at the new museum, one dismissive manager claimed that quote unions are for coal miners. But anyone who sells their labor deserves a say in their working conditions, whether they pack and ship vegetables or artworks. Um, and then I would extend that on to say not not even just physical labor, right? Yeah. Also intellectual oh, absolutely. Labor. Absolutely. I mean, that's a huge part of it. I think I just liked the sort of yeah. parallel of yeah. being able to pack and ship things. <laughs> um, but yeah. And also I'm, it's so telling that um, – that Massimo Tioni, like I just snorted with laughter when he was immediately like, well, it must be the art handlers who are, who are right, behind exactly. the union because they're somehow, I don't know, closer to some kind of idea of like the trades, I guess, or, right. or what is that? I, I mean, I think that's part of it. And I think, I mean, there is a degree of truth to that too. Like I think before the new museum was organized, like museum organizing since like the seventies when MoMA from their union, like was, has been largely concentrated among like art handlers and people doing oh, really? install work. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's like PS1 art handlers unionized 
a couple of years before okay. we did um, MoMA's. I mean, MoMA's art handlers had also been unionized. I think the Whitney's as well. Um, mm. And then Guggenheim sort of like art handlers and also maintenance workers, like a, a big group of sort of more like, physical and on-site work on-site yeah. during the pandemic. Um, they unionized shortly after we did at the new museum. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, just in, in my like <laughs> limited, like firsthand experience, I'm like, art handlers are usually like down. Like they, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like talking to art handlers at the new museums, like it wasn't a hard sell. People like get yeah. it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I like, I do. Yeah. Like there is a degree of truth to that. And uh-huh. also it's completely stems from this idea that like unions are for people who do manual labor. Yes. Um, yeah. When I worked at the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh, they would call it like the division between, um, you know, there were so many like grotesque divisions between different kinds of labor, but they talked about it specifically as people who were on the carpet and off the carpet, meaning that like the offices were carpeted. (laughs) And if you had an office, you were on the carpet. And this of course is all of the like curatorial staff and management and stuff. Wow. Yeah. It was so, yeah, it was pretty gross. Yeah. That's such a funny phrase too. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just like, it sounds like you're like potty training a dog. (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah I think I also wanted to ask you maybe in your kind of ongoing capacity because I think one of the things that I really was hoping for this interview is that people just as you were saying can can listen to it and understand themselves in in the experience that you've shared but then also understand that there are ways that they can work against it um, for themselves personally or perhaps in an organized capacity. What are suggestions that you would have on smaller scales maybe for people, for art workers to think about how to change their circumstances? Like for me personally, one of the one of the big things is that I will sh- I always share my salary yeah. with anybody who will ask. And even if they don't ask to be yeah. <laughs> totally frank. <laughs> same, same. I mean, I, I think that's really important. And that's also like, that was a really useful organizing tool for us at the museum. Like we mm-hmm. started all of our meetings from like our first sort of like casual lunch, I think, mm-hmm. with a salary share and everyone right. went around and like said what their salary was and often also gave like a sort of salary history and like those could get sort of emotional because of the way the new museum operated and the way many institutions operate. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's like a really critical organizing tool. I think also just talk to your coworkers Mm -hmm. um, and listen to your coworkers. I mean, like that's Mm -hmm. the thing about organizing conversations. They're mostly listening. Like, you want to figure out where people are at and what they need and what's not working for them. And like, you'll start to understand the overlaps in what's not working for them and what's not working for you. And Mm -hmm. also that many of these, many of these things are by design. Like things are not supposed to be working for you. Yes. You are not supposed to benefit from this. You are like, even, yeah. And I, I think that's the thing. Like maybe you have a nice boss, maybe it works not that bad and that's great. But like, Mm -hmm that can change at any point. And like the thing about unionizing is it's like, it's, it's this permanent structure. Like it's, it's sustainable in a way that like having a good relationship with your boss 
isn't. Um, I mean, it's also like, it gives you power in a way that that doesn't, but um, yeah. And it, and it gives power to people who maybe have a shitty boss or just don't have a great relationship with their boss. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like organize and like keep organizing. I think that's the thing too. It's, and that can be really hard. And that's why this is all kind of burnout work in a way. Like there's no end point. Like, I mean, the, you know, yeah. the end point is, you know, the demise of capitalism. Right, exactly. It's like the end points, like the end of capitalism and the end of institutions and abolition. And like, until yeah. we get there, like, this is just what we keep doing every fucking day. Um, so I'll meet with you next week and we'll yeah. continue to discuss. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I think that can get, it can get a little like dispiriting or tiring if yeah. you don't, if like that comes as a surprise to you at some point, but it, like even within an institution, even if we're just talking about sort of like labor organizing within a particular institution, it's like the fight like really doesn't end. Like, yeah. you know, you win your union and that's amazing. And then you have to negotiate a contract and then you get your contract and that's amazing. And then you have to make sure it's enforced. And then like in a few years you have to renegotiate and like mm-hmm. management's going to be pushing back yeah, all the time. So, like, we have to keep organizing. We have to keep pushing back and preparing for that. That's the thing. Like, the people who are in power, like, don't want us to get a break. Mm -hmm, (laughs) And mm -hmm, it's very mm -hmm. easy for them to not give us a break. Mm -hmm. And their resources to to basically catch anybody at a weak moment or catch when somebody's not able to like fully participate in protecting themselves. Exactly. Um, are so, are so much more, uh, their pockets are deeper in terms of resources. In that exactly. Way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to be able to talk about sort of like the, the sort of like personal and more messy dimensions of this work too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's why it was helpful for me to like have the essay out there Mm-hmm. Um, because that's something I was wary of doing for a long time also. Like I didn't, hmm. I don't want to make, I don't want to discourage people from organizing. I don't want to make this sound bad. Like it's obviously right. hard, but right. I think that was something I was really nervous about writing the essay and was trying to be really careful to avoid. And I, from the people I've spoken to, it sounds like it's, it hasn't had that effect that it's actually like encouraging people to organize and like that makes me really happy and relieved. But um, yeah, I think that was a hesitation I had for a while. It's just like, I don't want to be like, all these bad things happened from doing, being involved in this like really important effort. And mm-hmm. I don't want people to come away with that, come away from that being like, oh, well, these bad things happened. So it seems not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I think that that's, isn't that always it, right? It's like you, you will carry on with the status quo until you realize that the bad things that are happening to you right now are worse than what could possibly happen to you if you fought back. Right. Negotiating that for yourself personally is always a a struggle. Yeah. But it's like, you know, the bad things that happen if you fight back, even then, like, it's on your terms. Like, you made the choice Mm. to fight back. Like, Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's somehow, it feels different from just sort of like, being in a shitty job and taking it which sometimes you have to do too but like no but that's so important it's on your terms you have control Yeah. yeah I guess that's where the like no regrets comes from
Moments of the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish. We would like to thank Dana Copel for her contribution to this season, and a special thanks to all those of you who are supporting the podcast. Just the other day, out of a morbid curiosity, I, <laughs> I checked the Apple podcast ratings for the podcast and found a trove of five-star reviews, yeah. which felt very good. There were um, so many nice comments in there, too. Yes. So thank you for that. Um, we're so grateful that people are listening and responding and that these interviews can be useful and potentially joyful in some way. So yes. if you want to keep telling us um that feel free we are now listening <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can also support us more materially uh if possible at patreon.com slash momus art or contact me directly at skygooden at momus.ca your support absolutely makes a difference this has been episode 36 of momus the podcast